Section 3 of The National Geographic Magazine, Volume 9, April 1898. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. The Future of the Yukon Gold Fields by William H. Dahl. The conditions likely to prevail in the near future at the Yukon gold fields have received but little attention in the public prints. Some discussion of them may, therefore, be useful. It is well understood among those who have had experience in that region that the most important question for the welfare of gold seekers and others visiting the Yukon is that of transportation. Men, and to some extent domestic animals, may reach the Yukon by their own efforts but their food, tools, tents, or other portable shelter, and the heavy clothing necessary for protection against exceptional conditions of temperature and weather must be carried. No man can carry his own provisions and outfit without assistance. Even for dogs, the most economical draft animals, the necessary food will take up an exorbitant proportion of their load. It is hopeless to attempt to transport the necessity of life for thousands of people by the means hitherto in use. A conservative estimate places the number of people at present on the Yukon at 5,000. Few have estimated the number desirous of going in during the present season as low as 50,000. Should anything like that number succeed in reaching the Yukon during the next six months, it means that the transportation over that of the past season must be increased tenfold. A certain proportion must be allowed for waste, losses in transportation before reaching the destination, and the excess of need beyond the ordinary ration in more temperate climes. The number of trips to Dawson from the seacoast made in 1897 by the steamers now on the river was seven in all, while with all conditions favorable two trips per season can be made by a capable vessel it is unsafe to reckon on more than one for fifty thousand people seventy trips would have to be made in order to eliminate the possibility of starvation which has stared so many in the face under present conditions this provides not for comforts not for necessary furniture tools and machinery adequate to improve conditions that exist but merely to prevent things from getting worse does any reasonable person, familiar with the reason, believe that seventy trips are possible? Quite a number of flat-bottomed stern-wheelers for the Yukon are believed to be in process of construction at Unalaska, the intention being to tow them to St. Michael on the opening for navigation. Suppose that the fleet succeeds in reaching that port by 27th of June, the average date when the ice goes out of Norton Sound. Allow a week for getting them loaded in working order and ready to start for the river with a few days' fuel on board. If they take much fuel, they cannot take goods. Once well within the delta, feeling their way cautiously over the sandbars of the river, unknown to most of their navigators, they must depend for fuel on wood cut from the banks. The wood of the country is spruce with a little poplar and willow. These will not burn when green. When the river ice breaks up, about June 1st, an enormous quantity of driftwood is carried down by the water, which runs bank full, owing to the obstruction caused by the broken ice. When the ice is fairly out, 
the river falls a little and all along the bars low banks and level beaches this wood is stranded to remain until the freshet of next spring it is mainly upon this driftwood that the steamers depend for fuel the two old companies have landings scattered along the river and indians employed during the winter cutting up the wood and sledding it to places where the steamer can reach the bank the population of the yukon is small in proportion to the area the reliable indians are few and already engaged when the first rush of the melting snows is over the river falls rapidly into its normal channel and for the most part remains there during july and august later the mountain springs begin to give out or freeze at night and the river continues to fall wide flats appear on either side so that the spring drift stranded on the shores is separated from the channel by a wide space of sand and mud over which wood must be carried after being found and cut into suitable lengths for use the dry spruce burns rapidly and twelve cords a day seems a not unreasonable estimate for the amount required to run a good-sized boat well loaded how much of each day will be used up in procuring wood by the steamers not belonging to the two old companies any one may estimate for himself taking this delay into consideration it is evident the independent steamers are very unlikely to be able to make more than one trip up the river as far as dawson during the season let us allow two trips for each of the old company steamers or say twenty-four loads and one trip each for ten independent steamers the total amounts to thirty-four loads or less than half of the number required to keep the assumed influx of people on a next-to-starvation basis through the winter of 1898-99. I cannot emphasize too strongly that no dependence is to be placed on the rare beds of inferior ignite which occur on the upper river, even were any attempt made to work them, which is not the case. The lower river affords plenty of food in the shape of salmon, but this must be caught, dressed, and dried or salted in the height of the season, July and August, when the very men who need it are straining every nerve to reach the upper river where there is very little fish. Once the ice sets in, transportation over it of any large body of food, such as would be required by the assumed population, is impossible. Enough has been said to show the impossibility of feeding 50,000 people by means of supplies carried up the river under present conditions. Now we may turn our attention to the other routes of supply. We are told that the Canadian government proposes to give a monopoly of transportation over the old trail from Glenora on the Stitkine River to Lake Teslin. No reasonable person familiar with the conditions of the region will believe that a railway 150 miles long can be built and equipped for traffic over this route in four months no such person in his senses will claim that provisions could be taken from lake teslin to dawson for a population of thousands in the winter season over the frozen river it is wholly impracticable there is therefore no hope of adequate relief by this route by the short route over the passes if an immediate start is made it is just possible that provisions might be rushed through before the close of navigation but that this will be accomplished there is little reason to hope 
while legislatures are wrangling about special privileges, precious time is being wasted, and many lives will pay the penalty. Unless the rush for incomers is checked, and the influx of people rigidly restrained, I see no escape from the conclusion that the winter of 1898-99 will see starvation on the Yukon on an unparalleled scale. Every instinct of humanity calls aloud for the promotion of every possible transportation facility at once. Nothing but the fullest freedom in putting through every possible means of transport while there is yet time, regardless of private greed and the not unnatural desire to retain national control of the means of transit, can be justified for a moment. The true interest of Canada, as well as of the United States, lies in the fullest development of the resources of the region, and without accepting all possible means of transportation, this is impossible. Those who may be able, from their own resources, to push through a year's supply of provisions for themselves, will in the long run be as much interested as any others in the welfare of the whole mass of immigrants, for a starving man will respect no property rights in food, and no man in the face of starving people may hope to keep his own store intact. Leaving out of account the impending crisis on the Yukon, it is the writer's belief that it is imperatively necessary for the development of the gold fields that transportation for coal should be provided from the seacoast to the Yukon, avoiding the interrupted navigation of the Luz River. Here again, the change from the sea-going vessel to a river steamer on the Stitkin, from that steamer to the railway, and then to another steamer on the Teslin, makes the Stitkin route as impracticable. One transshipment to the railway at Pyramid Harbor, and from the cars to barges on the Yukon, is so much simpler and cheaper as to put an end to argument. The present method of using wood of so poor a quality as spruce on the Yukon steamers cannot last if the country is to be permanently developed. With coal floated downstream on barges from the headwaters, the steamers might be abundantly supplied with suitable fuel, and two or even more trips a season might be reckoned on as a certainty. British Columbia has coal in abundance, and here would be a means of its indefinite utilization by which a far greater profit would inure to the people of that province than is possible through any short-sighted monopoly of transportation, which would infallibly strangle the development of their Yukon goldfield in a very short time. A broad and generous cooperation of both countries is essential to a satisfactory outcome of the projects now in contemplation. Let us hope that it may be realized before it is too late. The length of the coastline of Alaska is estimated at 18,211 miles, which is greater than that of the entire coastline of the United States. End of section 3